Hello and welcome to Inside the Euros. We're back to analyse England's win over Croatia, Netherlands beating Ukraine and look forward to Spain against Sweden, among other things. I'm Rick Sharma. And I'm David Gibbs. And we're joined by regular Joe Casanelli in Munich. Hi Joe. Chaps. And AFP football writer Thomas Allnut in Madrid. How are you Tom? Good, thanks Rick. Thanks for having me on. A pleasure. And later we'll have Reuters Spain correspondent Richard Martin reporting from Seville. Right, we've got to start today with Christian Eriksen, at least quickly. He's doing well, he's recovering in hospital after collapsing in Saturday's game between Denmark and Finland. And he's put out a statement this morning, Christian Eriksen, that said, Thank you, I won't give up, I feel better now. But I just want to understand what's happened. Because he doesn't exactly know what's happened to him. It was cardiac arrest rather than a heart attack he had on the pitch. Kasper Hulman, the, De- the Dem- Denmark coach, said he wishes they hadn't played in the second half. I don't know what you think about that, Tom, whether it's something that players should be able to decide or not, because UEFA said that both sets of players wanted to play, so they did. I don't know if it, if it should be up to them. It seemed to me, in the moment, a, a very strange decision. I, I think, as well, we've got used to when these sorts of things have happened, not necessarily you know, in, in this particular case, but when we've had other you know, racism scenarios as well you know we've seen that the game has been postponed you know even for a short time um, it, it seemed just within you know to, to, to resume the match within what was it maybe an hour was it I don't know maybe half an hour 14 hour and, th- hour and three courses yeah right I mean I just it seemed like a very quick turnaround and I think in a way that there needs to maybe be some some more uh, a clearer protocol on this kind of thing because it it seems to me that in, in this kind of situation the decision should probably be taken out of the players hands you know I don't think it's really fair that the players are made to to make that this kind of decision in that in that moment, you know, and um, I think probably it could have been postponed to the next day, and 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 you know it could have, they could have finished it maybe a, a day or two later, and I don't think it really would have affected the tournament. It's interesting they had that option because they were offered a twelve o'clock slot the next day, and they had to choose between them, and they said they'd rather play on the day because they didn't want to go home, not sleep a wink, because they're worried about Ericsson and then have to have to come back in and play the next morning. It's a really tough spot. Yeah, and I think as well, you know, it's very difficult. I think to to comment from the outside because I think when you're when you're in the in the changing room, you know, with the other players, uh, with the coach, um, you know, I'm sure that there's a very uh, a very specific atmosphere that's going on in there, and people are having very uh, having conversations which obviously we're not we're not aware of. So I think from a, from a very remote distance, of course, you know, for us it maybe seems strange and, and perhaps inappropriate that the game went on. Um, but perhaps for them, it, it felt entirely natural. I mean, you have to remember as well. We've, we've found out since then that, that Christian Eriksen was able to talk to the to the, to the Denmark players, and it's entirely possible that you know that they were they felt you know inspired or perhaps at least encouraged to play the match after speaking to him. You know, and I think that's the thing as well. I, th- I think you have to sort of respect what the players um, felt in the moment. But I, my personal opinion is that probably in these in these situations, it should be more of a, a formal process where where the authorities are kind of in charge of the of the decision making and not and not the players who are very much in the in the heat of the issue at the time. On to England and a one 0 win over Croatia. Okay, performance and great result in my book. And England a lot of breathing room, Joe. Yeah, it did. I mean. Obviously, England had this unenviable record of never having won their opening game in a European Championship. So I think it's very good for the for the squad to get that monkey off the back. It's quite remarkable when you think of some of the teams that England have had in the past, and you know some of the teams that they've faced that they've ever actually 
managed to win the opening game. So, yeah, I mean, the first sort of half an hour was very good. Well, maybe 20 minutes, 20 minutes to half an hour were very, very good. I thought England totally in the ascendancy, but it was one of those cases where you maybe thought that they would come to regret not getting an opening goal when they were on top because Croatia then came back into the game. But ultimately, things worked out. And Gareth Southgate, who maybe caused several uh, eyebrows to raise with his team selection, was ultimately vindicated. Yeah, what do you think about that, Tom, the, t- the team selection? I mean, I, th- I think, you know, when you have a huge build-up to a, to a match like that, you know, it's quite clearly for England, well, let's assume, you know, that the the toughest game in the group, you know, it's obviously the, the start of a, a, to- a tournament which we've been waiting a long time for. I think it's entirely inevitable that there's going to be a huge debate over the players Southgate picked and, and you know there was always going to be a lineup that everyone wanted and maybe there was always going to be two or three positions that didn't go down with what was the kind of popular viewpoint I mean I think you know the the key thing is obviously as Joe said you know I think the the, the big decisions you know Phillips, Sterling, even Trippier I think to some extent has vindicated really the, the the picks whether or not they continue I mean Sterling I think obviously will and Phillips as well but I mean whether Trippier continues it, it, you know let's see I mean I think the, the team will also change as the tournament goes on I mean I, I thought it was a solid win for England I, I mean I, I thought maybe some of the reaction was perhaps uh, I don't know maybe just slightly exaggerated I mean I thought it was a solid performance rather than being spectacular there were certain certainly stages in the game when they were very impressive equally I think there were some stages in the game where they were slightly passive and it, it sort of drifted a bit which was perhaps due to the heat as well but um, I think, as you said, Rick, I think it was all about the result, really, in the, in the first match. And, and they got that um, against probably what's going to be the toughest team in the group. So certainly a good start um, and, and something to build on. Yeah, I, I agree with that, Tom, as well. And I think that while while it is a good win, I think we need to do kind of keep things into perspective. And that while Croatia, you know, did get to the final of the last World Cup, this is a very different Croatia side. They've lost a number of key players in there, you know, and the likes of Luka Modric, a couple of, you know, who stayed there a couple of years older. This is not the same Croatia team that once was. So yeah, while it was the obviously the toughest game in the group, um, I think that we need to just kind of temper the uh, the excitement a little bit. Sorry to if I'm sounding like a party pooper here, but there will be um, much more tougher days to come. And given the way that the draw's looking, beating Croatia could actually be a more of a curse than a blessing if it because it looks like England will probably top that group you'd imagine now having having come through the toughest opponents and they could face one of France, Germany or Portugal. I think two players who heard a great game were Calvin Phillips and Tyrone Mings. What are your thoughts on those 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 two guys? I mean I thought Phillips was was excellent, you know, and, and as someone who doesn't really cover the Prem Premier League, you know, very regularly now, you know, much more La Liga and, and, and all things Spain. You know, I, I admit I didn't haven't really seen so much of him, but he, he really surprised me how how dynamic he was, how good he was in in small spaces. Obviously, for the goal, you know, to to drive through and also to to pick out Sterling with that pass. I mean, I think he was a he was a major major plus for England. And I think as well, you know, it's that it, it's that thing where England for quite a long time have have maybe struggled to have have that kind of almost that Modric player with a, a sort of a connector really between the the back the defence in the midfield, you know, I mean, they've obviously got some very talented players in the final third who can, who can provide penetration and, and, and running in behind and creativity. But maybe that just that phase before where, where it's about kind of transitioning through, I think having, having someone in there who is comfortable, you know, in, in congested areas, I think is, is a, is a major plus for England. You know, I, mean, I think it was a very impressive performance. I th- you know, I think as well, when it comes to a tournament, it's always worth not peaking too early. I mean, you know, we often see teams who kind of win three or four nil in the first games. Everyone raves about them. 
maybe the, like, the ideal result is really to kind of get a solid 1-0 win. <laughs> People are kind of piling the pressure on. I, I, mean, I think as well it's entirely inevitable really that in England, you know, people are very excited. You have to remember the context. Obviously, it's at Wembley. Been waiting for this tournament for a long time. I'm sure actually in the ground as well, there was a certain, maybe a, a different kind of a feeling of elation there for getting the win and for playing quite well. And for there being fans, of course, and, and the sound of of people cheering and, and, and feeling that relief very much immediately. I can, I can understand that maybe when you're watching the game live as well, there might have been a slightly more feeling of, of elation and joy perhaps as it was watching on telly but I think it's a, it's, it's a great start for England no I doubt think Joe's it. right in that he points out that Croatia have changed a bit because Tyrone Mings was flawless yesterday didn't do anything wrong but then he was up against Kramaric for example and I don't think Croatia's attack were up to much at all I mean if Mario Mandzukic was there it'd be a, it might be a very very different afternoon for Tyrone Mings and another performance that was solid and impressive, and he got the opening goal of the game, and the only goal of the game was Raheem Sterling. And there were a lot of questions over whether Sterling should be starting, given his form with Manchester City. But he shut up his doubters yesterday, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, I was probably uh, not necessarily a, a doubter, but I think that you can definitely say he's not been in great form of late. And I was probably more on the aboard the Jaden Sancho train which ultimately didn't leave the station and looked to have been broken down at the depot for a while because he wasn't even a match day <laughs> squad. I was sort of I wasn't surprised at Serling's start. I fully expected him to start. However, I I was very presently surprised by the fact um by Gordon's first ever major tournament goal, which I think is, you know, just another one of these monkey off um off an England player's backs, which helps. And so yeah, I think that Raheem Sterling getting that getting that opener, silencing the doubters is could only be positive because he's going to retain his place now. He'll hopefully gain confidence from that. I will be interested to see moving forwards what Southgate does with the squad because obviously, you know, competition rule state, you do have to name uh, two substitute goalkeepers, which mean that outfield players miss out in the match day squad. So it'll be interesting to see if the Sancho and Chilwell decision was more fitness related, if they're just maybe catching up a little bit with the rest of the guys or whether it's just that Southgate doesn't think that I can't I couldn't imagine that Southgate doesn't think that England need a player like Sancho because if so why would you pick him so I think that maybe in a game where England are sort of against a better side well a better side in that they who are going to offer a bit more an attack and enjoy more of the possession England look to sort of spring on the break I think that's where Sancho may come into things but I certainly think after after Sterling's performance he'll probably be more of an impact sub more than anything and what about you Tom were you a doubting Thomas yeah I think that's probably I think I probably was um, I think you know I think I'm always slightly wary of of players being asked to kind of transform their form you know in, in a tournament you know I think there's often the, the idea okay well he hasn't been playing well for two or three months but you know he could just suddenly catch fire in the tournament I always think maybe it's that's a slightly optimistic um, approach to take, but equally with with Sterling, I have to remember that he's always he has always been pretty good for England. You know, I mean, you look at his his record recently. I mean, you know, he scores goals, he criticists. You know, he's he's always delivered really for England. I think it particularly under Southgate, and I think it's fair for Southgate, of course, to 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 lean on that and to and to back him. I think you know, I mean, you have to remember that. The playing for Manchester City and and delivering in that team is a is a is a different is a completely different task really to, to playing for England I think um, so fair play to Southgate for for sticking to his guns on that um, I agree with Joe I think now you know Sterling looks like he'll he'll be nailed for the next game um, 
But let's see as the tournament goes on. I mean, I don't think, you know, Sancho not being in the squad doesn't mean I don't think that he could, he still doesn't have a, a big part to play. Um, you know, it's been repeated many times that I think fatigue is going to be a huge element in this tournament. And I think the teams who have a who have a squad depth and the ability to bring on players for the last 30 minutes, you know, and also rotate from, from game to game, I think are going to have a huge advantage. And I think England are, are very well, uh, well equipped, particularly in that kind of front front area to rotate these kind of players. So it, it might be that Sterling, you know, is, is playing uh, predominantly now and we'll see what happens later in the tournament. But it's, it's a the great player start. who misses out because of Sterling playing in the side is probably Jack Grealish, who a lot of fuss was made about him, about wanting him to play. But ultimately, Raheem Sterling is a goal scorer who scores, who scores a lot of goals and Grealish has scored one goal in maybe in 2021. I can't remember the exact statistic, but he, for me, it seemed like it was just another issue to try and create tension among English media, among some fans. And there's there's been problems with England fans coming into the tournament. We've talked about it before. We don't have to go over it again. But this kind of performance means that Southgate probably isn't going to rotate too much in the in the next game, is he? No, I mean, I think I think that's probably right. I, th- I think the goals thing is, is, is very important here. You know, I, mean, I, I remember when we were in, at the World Cup in uh, 2018 in Russia, we did a little sit down with Steve Holland during the during the group games. And I remember him, there was at that point, there was also talk about Sterling's position. I think it was also maybe Deli Ali's position. And he was very much kind of saying, look, if you go through the team, you know, you go through good teams. I think, I think his example was Manchester United in the, in the sort of the 90s. He was kind of saying, look, you have players all over the pitch you can score you know it's not just about you know your, your, your central striker whoever you know Andy Cole and Dwight York whoever it was you're scoring 20-25 goals you also need Beckham Giggs you know Keane's goals are chipping in 5-6-7 here and there and he sort of pointed to his England uh, lineup that he had in this piece of paper and he said okay look we've got Kane here who, who can who, who is that man who's obviously your, your your main threat but who else in the team you know scores goals he was very honest about it you know and he was sort of pointing at players and saying this guy you know He's got one or two this season, one, two, you know, and it was it was very clear that Deli Ali at that point, obviously in a different context now, but and Sterling, you know, were players who who can score, you know, and and you can't just suddenly ask players who who aren't used to scoring, who haven't got that instinct or haven't been asked to do it all season to suddenly contribute that. So I don't think it should be underestimated the fact that Sterling can contribute those goals, take a bit of the pressure off Kane. Um, and I think he, he he definitely, you know, in that department, it's, he, he provides a, a crucial aspect to how England play. Moving on to the Netherlands against Ukraine. A 3-2 win for the Dutch, snatching victory from the jaws of a draw after snatching a draw from the jaws of victory. Best game in the tournament so far? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It was uh, a joy to watch, really. You know, obviously such tragic circumstances over the weekend that, that we touched upon earlier, it was good to just sort of be able to enjoy the football for what it was. You know, England's was a, a narrow 1-0 victory. Uh, so to see a game, a 3-2 game, really spark into life with Holland, well, the Netherlands rather, um, looking like they'd just completely thrown it away, having got themselves into such a commanding position, that Yarmolenko Thunderbolt, um, who I think we need to give a doff of the cap to Statman Johnny, who came on uh, the pod a couple of episodes ago, who told us to keep an eye on Yarmolenko because his form for Ukraine is completely different to his form for West Ham. And he, he certainly proved a point there. And then, yeah, I mean, it was a game of the tournament. It had everything really, didn't it? You know, it had screamers, dodgy goalkeepers, you know, a couple of 
you know, contentious decisions maybe. It was just, it was what tournament football is all about, really. I think it was definitely one to get the, the neutrals. If they hadn't sort of bought into Euro 2020 thus far, I think that was maybe the game that, that got you hooked. Netherlands were quite good going forward, but then very, very fragile at the back. And you can see why people are complaining about De Boer, can't you? Yeah, I mean, I think we need to caveat that slightly with the fact that they're missing Virgil van Dijk and also Matthias de Ligt. Who there? That would be their first choice centre back partnerships. So, it's always difficult, you know, for an international manager. There's going to be injuries. People are going to pick up, especially in in this this day and age. There's going to be illnesses as well as injuries. People are going to miss out for certain things. But maybe the drop off there is a lot more dramatic. You know, people talked a lot about the drop off with no Harry Maguire in the England side. But then, if you factor in well, no Virgil Van Dijk and no Matthias de Ligt, the drop off in the Netherlands team is quite big as well. But I guess the fans, well, their fans won't complain if if they're scoring three goals every game. Well, they can probably afford to concede two, can't they? And the other game on Sunday was Austria and in their first ever Euros win against North Macedonia. They won 3-1. The Austrian players went wild at the end of the game. I was a little bit surprised to see David Alaba start in defence, given the opposition. And when he did get further forward, he set up a goal for Gregorich. Yeah. You're going to be seeing a lot yeah, of David sure. Alaba next yeah. season, Tom. He's going to be at Real Madrid. Maybe be a replacement for, for Ramos. I don't know. I mean, it, it looks like an expensive deal as well. I mean, I think the idea that he comes for free, obviously, it is not quite what it, what it says in the tin. But I think he played well yesterday. I mean, that cross that he put in was fantastic ball in, wasn't it? I mean, and it was great to see Austria get off to a good start. And Arnautovic scored off the bench too. He's playing in Shanghai Port in China. He's still got it, although he also caused some trouble afterwards, screaming at Macedonians. Yeah, do you think that that was sort of that might have been linked to his Balkan roots, or is he just is he just a wind up merchant? I mean, I'm I'm not that don't quite closely follow the uh, the Chinese Super League, so I'm not sure if there's any beef uh, carried over from any Macedonians in there or not, or whether it's just that he's a bit of a madcap <laughs> who who would start a fight in an empty room. Joe, I think he's one of the guys that you probably want to go for a pint with, surely. Well, I mean, I'm a very, I'm, ha- I'm I like to be very happy and chilled out when I'm out for a beer. I think that Marco would probably be looking to start fights with absolutely anyone and everyone in the pub, wouldn't he? Moving on to today's games, that's Monday, June 14th. We've got Scotland, Czech Republic in Glasgow. The other Group D match, that is. And then we've got Poland, Slovakia from Group E in St. Petersburg and Spain against Sweden in Seville. We're going to talk about Spain quickly. They, I mean, they've had a tough old time with COVID. They don't seem that strong to me looking at the squad. A far cry from the team that dominated football between 2008 and 2012. What do you reckon, Tom? I think, I mean, the big thing about Spain really going into this tournament is that nobody really knows what to expect. You know, I mean, I, I think due to circumstances out of their control, I mean, of course, the the two positive tests for COVID uh, last week was a, was a, a real blow um, to their preparations. I mean, I think... You know the, the the limited amount of time any coach gets with the team um, means that every day in in the lead up to a tournament is precious. And I think particularly for for Spain because I think Luis Enrique is is one of if not the probably elite coach in 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 the draw. You know, and I think he's one of the major strengths for the for the team. So to be denied a kind of week on the on the training ground with him, I think was a was it was it was it was, was a significant blow. Um, how much it affects them in terms of their rhythm and their and their sort of morale going into the into the tournament, I guess we'll see. I mean, I, I think the one thing as well with, with Spain is that perhaps 
a fairly kind draw in the group means I think they can they might be able to sort of at least play their way in a little bit, you know, which is I think they need because, you know, zooming out a bit, you know, we, we we've seen since Luis Enrique was appointed in, in twenty eighteen, three years of 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 what's essentially been a lot of experimentation, you know. I mean they they've used I think sixty one different players, you know, in three years. You know, I mean that's <laughs> like six different teams. I mean I, I mean Spain have got some fantastic players, there's no doubt about that. Um, I think if you look at the team sheet that they put out tonight, whatever it is, and, and no one's quite sure, um, you know, I think they have an impressive team and they have a team that can certainly trouble trouble any any side in the latter stages. And I think they're, they're, they're certainly in that kind of cluster of, of contenders who, if France, you know, fail to kind of live up to the hype, I think they, they have a, they have the ability to certainly to be to be there. Um, but the problem we, we have is that we don't really know... Um, what this what this team is about you know we've, we've seen them beat Germany 6-0 for example and then the next game they drew at home to Greece 1-0 you know I mean we don't know in, in, in quite key positions like goalkeeper you know we're not entirely sure if it's going to be Unai Simon or David Gea or even Robert Sanchez we don't know if it's going to be Morata or Moreno up front in the midfield three I mean we, we're still unsure as to is it going to be Koke we don't know who's going to be the captain even with Busquets out I mean there are so many big question marks going into a, into the tournament it's really impossible to know what what Spain we're going to get. Um, I guess Luis Enrique will hope that kind of uncertainty creates a bit of a bit of competition for places. Um, that perhaps the chaos last week might even bring the squad together a bit. It was nice to see the kind of you know the the guards of honor for various players coming back from from their from their tests and the, and for the training bubble of departing. You know, it looked to me from a distance, you know, through social media, that there's a fairly a good kind of sense of uh, togetherness in the squad. But I really think the Spain are a, a bit of a mystery team going into the tournament. You know, it remains to be seen how they how they perform, how they deliver under pressure, and some of their young players like Pedri, obviously, you know, whether they can really catch fire in, in the tournament and, and kind of make a name for themselves. Um, um, let's see. Um, I, you know, I, I expect them to beat Sweden, um, but against better teams, maybe later in the tournament, um, I think it's it's almost impossible right now to say how they're going to fare. I just wanted to jump in there, Tom. You mentioned the goalkeeping situation. What um, what is going on with the Spain goalkeeping situation? Because it's quite it's quite a mystery, really, isn't it? You know, they had Ike Casillas for so long, so that position was just sewn up. They never had any issues during sort of a 10, 15 year period with him, and all of a sudden, since he's since he's out of the picture, they can't really seem to find an adequate replacement. Everyone thought David de Gea was going to be the man, but he doesn't seem to have been able to tran- uh, transfer his club form onto the international stage. But lately, um, Unai Simon, who you'd probably expect to start, has been, uh, he's thrown a few gaffes in, hasn't he really? And then Robert Sanchez is a total unknown, uncapped, unknown yeah. quantity played no, for Brighton. I, mean, I, mean, I think, I think going into League. a tournament as well, I always think that to have any kind of uncertainty at all over your, your goalkeeper is a, is a, is a, is a fairly major weakness, you know. And I, I, I mean, Luis Enrique has been kind of quizzed by the Spanish press numerous times in the last few days and and and, and weeks over over this position. You know, I mean, he's been kind of really pushed to name his his number one. I mean, even yesterday in the press conference, he was asked, you know, is Unai Simon going to be the? Is he going to play? You know, and he kind of. Uh, you know, said it, it, oh, it's an easy, it's an easy answer. It's going to be one of Simon de Gea and Sanchez. Yeah, yeah thanks very much. I and mean, I, I think it, I think you know, essentially, you might think as well that maybe Unai Simon could 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 benefit from a little bit of public backing. You know, from 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 Luis Enrique at least saying, you know, he is my number one going to the tournament. We we believe in him, so that it kind of removes this 
this whole cloud of doubt over the position because it's, I mean, I think there's the problem really that they have is that De Gea hasn't really been, as you say, the kind of the, the nailed on successor maybe they were hoping, hoping, uh, hoping for after Casillas and Uno Simon, you know, maybe a sort of solid short term choice. Perhaps that's unfair on him, but, you know, perhaps not kind of a long term legacy goalkeeper but perhaps someone you kind of rely on for a tournament you know even his form has been shaky in in, in recent weeks and towards the end of the season so I think it's definitely a, a massive problem area for Spain going into the tournament and I think as well you know defensively they've been fairly strong but equally you know that we're not quite sure as to who the two centre-backs are going to be either you know we assume it's going to be Pau Torres next to him probably Laporte you know but he's making I think what his second cap against Sweden if, if he plays so I mean it's, it's not as if he has a kind of a real certain sure back line in front of him and, and probably more Marcus Llorente at right back who, who sort of plays as a right forward for, for Atleti. So um, I think, you know, there, there are big question marks for Spain. And as I say, I mean, I th- they might at least be able to kind of find some form and, and, and fluidity and sort of almost get to know each other as the tournament goes on. Um, I think that's that, that's what, what their best hope might be. Yeah, we'll have to see. And I spoke to Richard Martin, as I mentioned earlier, of Reuters down in Andalusia to find out his thoughts on Spain too. So, Richard, you're in Seville. How hot is it there? Oh, it's really, really hot. I think that's something that's really going to affect Sweden because they've been training in Gothenburg where temperatures are about 16, 17 degrees. And in Seville during the day, it's about 30 degrees. And when the match kicks off, it's going to be 28 degrees Celsius. And I don't think it's going to be a huge problem for Spain because they've been preparing for this for the last 10 days in Madrid. They've been specifically training at the hottest moment of the day in Madrid. So they're ready for the Seville temperatures. And Luis Enrique today in the press conference was actually joking about it, saying, oh, for Seville, it's actually not really that hot. So I think it's definitely going to be something that's going to impact um, Sweden a lot more. And it is, yeah, it's something's quite difficult for journalists um, and for fans as well. But um, I think it's still going to be a really, really great occasion here in Seville. That's a very classic Luis Enrique line, just trying to say everything's fine, even though things might not be fine. It has been quite a troubled lead into the tournament for Spain. Luis Enrique has been criticised for various reasons, not bringing Sergio Ramos, of course, Seville is his home city. And their squad is the fourth youngest at the Euros. What's your take on their chances this summer? Yeah, it's really difficult to know what to, what to think about Spain, because considering there's, there's very little in common between the current crop of players and the team that won it all. Um, between 2008 and 2012 and perhaps that's that's good because if you see in the in the last world cup basically it looked like spain were trying to be something that they just weren't able to do anymore so i think luis enrique is completely right to try and kind of shake up the team and i think it's good that he hasn't brought ramos actually because i think if ramos wasn't going to play every game that was just going to be a huge distraction and um, people are talking about how there aren't many leaders and i think luis enrique is quite happy to be the leader himself he, um, he was asked about this in the press conference today they said, you know, what do you think about the fact there aren't any leaders? And he said, well, I can always be the leader. And he said, yeah, I could be for better or worse. I'm a good, I am a leader. And um, any coach that isn't a leader isn't a very good coach. So I think he's quite happy to, to be in that situation. I think that's probably why he didn't want to take Ramos. I think he's going to be the alpha male in this relationship. Um, and I think what there's a lot of strange things about the team is that I think that Spain definitely need a shake-up, but I think that a lot of the decisions Luis Enrique has made are a bit strange. For example, Marcos Llorente could be an incredible player for Spain after the season he's had at Letico, but he's been playing it right back. I mean, it might turn out great, but I just didn't, don't think that his, you know, he's going to get the best out of Marcos Llorente at right back. I mean, he's already changed positions once in his career. Maybe he can do it again. Marcos Llorente played at right wing back 
for Atletico Madrid at times this season. But actually, during that period, their form went off the rails. He was much better when he was further forward up the pitch. Yeah, Atletico, really, that was when Trippier was out, wasn't it? Yeah, it was made a huge difference to them. Yeah, he's he was their second top goal scorer behind Suarez. He's completely wasted as a right-back, in my opinion. Um, and I think that, yeah, this is just a couple of strange decisions from, from Luis Enrique, you know, um, you know, also the fact that he just didn't want to bring he didn't want to bring a twenty six man squad, and then decided to call up a whole other parallel squad. You know, completely interrupting their holidays, and then he thanked everyone, and then he's actually got two spare places, and he's got all these extra players that he's called up who are sitting there in Madrid, and he's just not calling upon them. So it's just loads of kind of just odd decisions from the coach. But that's always kind of been like he likes to play a game with the press. Um, and he's kind of he is a fascinating coach, and obviously he's he's been through some horrendous things personally, which is, adds a whole new element to it. When they were talking, uh, the press were asking him about what he, you know, how this coronavirus situation, you know, this upheaval is affecting him. He just said, you know, compared to what I've had to go through, this is child's play. So I think that it's going to be, I think that he's this is a huge kind of period for Luis Enrique. Obviously, he he quit. Well, he he he, um, he left the Spain coach because of for personal reasons and then for because when his daughter got cancer and then a couple of months after she, after she tragically passed away he decided he he wanted to get back in the game and um you know i think he really wants something to focus on so i think this is this is a huge huge tournament for him as well as for the team you're in seville like i said earlier and the, the you were supposed to be in bilbao the game was was at the new san mames lovely stadium it's been moved to La Cartuja in Seville, which isn't a stadium that's used. It's not one of the two main football stadiums in Seville for Sevilla or Real Betis. So what is La Cartuja like? Because you were there today at the training. And why are they using that stadium? Well, I don't want to sound ungrateful because it's great to be at a tournament like this, you know, wherever you are. But I think it's it's a horrendous stadium. It's a terrible, terrible move. Seville is a, is a fantastic city, buzzing with life, with two historic city, uh, football clubs in, in great areas of the city. Um... Seville is in the modern neighbourhood of Nervion and Betis is in a working class neighbourhood with loads of residential residences. Um, it's a very residential area and and this is in the middle of nowhere and the stadium is really ramshackle. It's got a running track running around it and there's the, the, like the, the whole kind of facilities are farcical. We got a lift up, we had to get a lift taken up to the top of the press tribune and it was like something out of Star Wars, like this kind of like metal, really, really rickety. It was everyone, like people, and there were other journalists in the in the lift, were doing like light, um, making videos, just laughing about how how ridiculous the whole thing was, and it's just such a shame because you know um, the Sanchez Pizjuan and the Benito Villamarín are great kind of footballing arenas, and they've just been discarded in favour of this white elephant. The whole thing about La Cartuja is. It's a stadium which hasn't had any purpose for a very long time. It held the um, 2003 UEFA Cup final and basically had done nothing since then. In fact, I remember it became a bit of a running joke a few years ago. Every year when Spain was deciding where they were going to ho- have the Copa del Rey final, there was always, like, oh, maybe they'll have it in La Cartuja, and they never did. And then in the last couple of years, they decided La Cartuja has to be used again. I think Seville is just a bit embarrassed by it, and so it's trying to re-energize it. But they haven't done anything they haven't glammed up the stadium at all so you basically got this ramshackle stadium that wasn't being used for a very long time probably because it's such a bad stadium and now they're just deciding to use it just 
just for the sake of it. And I think it's a, a really big mistake. The facilities are really bad. It's just in a lifeless part of town. There's no bars. It's just going to be, yeah, I think it could be so much better um, if it was in if it was in Seville, Sevilla or Betis Stadium. But having said all that, Andalusia is, is actually where you get the kind of the greatest expressionism of Spain. All the kind of the stereotypes uh, you think of Spain, I think, are most true in Andalusia and Seville. And they really love the Spanish team. And I think it is a better host city, certainly, than Bilbao. I mean, Bilbao, a lot of people in Bilbao don't even feel Spanish. And especially with the pandemic, there was just no no one wanted it there. And people in Seville really do want it. And I think it's going to be a really good atmosphere. I just think it's such a shame that it's in such an awful stadium in the middle of nowhere where all the things you associate with Seville, like life and colour, are just absent. Yeah, that is a shame. But hopefully at least the game is good. That's on Monday night. Before we go, Joe, you're in Munich now. You'll be at the Group of Death games from tomorrow, starting with France against Germany on Tuesday. You looking forward to that? No, it's probably going to be quite boring. Yeah, of course I am, Rick. Yeah, it's going to be a, <laughs> a fantastic game. I don't think it maybe will be as entertaining as, you know, the Netherlands-Ukraine stunner. I think it'll be a lot more cagey because, like you say, it is the Group of Death where Portugal, you throw them into the mix as well. Hungary, who I think a lot of people are maybe underestimating. You know, they're obviously not, they're not they're not one of the, the powerhouses of the tournament, but they showed in 2016 they're not mugs either. So I think it'll be quite a cagey affair. I'm very much looking forward to seeing Kylian Mbappe in the flesh. I think it will be one of the, might even be the first time I actually get to see Kylian Mbappe play in the flesh, which is something that I'm very much looking forward to. And yeah, it'll be interesting to see just how France uh, go into it, whether they kind of think, right, we want to kind of banish the ghosts of 2016 where they lost in the final. We want to continue our momentum from the World Cup, you know, lay down a marker against Germany in their own backyard or whether kind of both sides will think, you know what, a draw is probably good enough for both of us. We'll back ourselves to beat Hungary and get a, get a positive result against Portugal and all go through. So I think it's, uh, it's going to be an interesting one. And I think that I'd say the pressure is probably more slightly on Germany, given, you know, we've spoken in the past about their squad and their coach, how things have gone for them ever since they won the World Cup in 2014. So I think the pressure is probably more on them. The fact they're playing in front of their own fans will, will be a big burden. So, yeah, it's going to be good. I, I'd fancy France, but I wouldn't at all be surprised if it was a very cagey sort of nil-nil or 1-1 either. That's all from us for now. Come back for daily roundups in the evening and we'll be recording in full again on Wednesday after the first round of matches has been completed. Mm-hmm.